This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Chris Ye from Wasabe Ventures. First, we discuss the book The Alliance, which he co-authored with Reid Hoffman and Ben Kasnocha, and how the ideas can be applied to the potential displacement of labor by technology. We also discuss the concept of blitzscaling and how the ideas from this Stanford course can apply to Asia and the rest of the world. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Bernard. How are you? I'm well, and I'm only having a few more days here in Silicon Valley before heading back to Singapore. And how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I do love Singapore. It's such a wonderful place. I've only had a chance to visit it once, but I really enjoyed it, especially the night safari. Thanks for the kind words. And I'm talking to Chris Ye from Wasabi Ventures, and he's also a well-known author and also entrepreneur. But before that, Chris, I want to get to know you better. How do you get started in your career? Well, it's a funny thing. Back when I was graduating from Stanford, I had studied product design and creative writing, which meant that the standard thing for me to do would be to go work for a company like IDEO. But around that time, which was 1994, 1995, the internet was really coming out. And I happened to interview with a company called D.E. Shaw & Company, a very well-known secretive hedge fund out in New York. And they saw the same thing I did. They felt that the internet was going to fundamentally change the way everything happened in the world. I'd already been familiar with the internet from being at Stanford, having email, and the web had just really come out at that point in time. And I thought, wow, this is going to really change everything. So I ended up not becoming a professional designer. Instead, I went to D.E. Shaw and Company to help them launch internet companies. And I've essentially been in the internet field or the startup world ever since. And in fact, I think Jeff Bezos also came from the eShaw. There seems to be a whole group of distinguished alumni who work on internet companies that came from that company as well, right? Absolutely. D.E. Shaw was an amazing place. They really were Google before Google existed in terms of recruiting. We would recruit only from the top 25 schools in the world. We would uh, recruit people based on their grades and SAT scores in addition to everything else. So the raw brain power was incredible. And there are a lot of distinguished alumni of D.E. Shaw and company, uh, including, for example, Jeff Holden, who went to join Jeff Bezos at Amazon and is currently the chief technical officer of Uber. So a lot of incredible people at DE Shaw and Company. So from there, you went to start internet companies. How do you eventually end up doing Wasabi Ventures? So there are several threads that came together for that. The first is that at my first startup, Target First, one of the people I hired as our VP of sales was Tom Kugler, now known as TK. And we hired him because at the time we were looking at doing advertising sales and there were other candidates who maybe had more direct advertising sales experience. But when it came time to hire someone, I said, we're going to hire the best athlete available, the person with the best raw brain power, best ability to do different things. Because who knows what we're going to be doing in 12 months. So we ended up hiring TK. And I called him TK because our company already had a Tom and a Thomas. So he had to just go ahead and become TK since he couldn't go by Tom Kugler. Yeah, that was the start of sort of a partnership. We worked together at that company. We then started other companies together and had just become lifelong friends and wanted to find ways to work with each other. At the same time, 
this was now into the, the mid-2000s, uh, I was starting to do investing. So I did some angel investments. I started with a, a friend's company and started investing in, in other companies like PBWiki and Ustream. And doing this angel investing really got me hooked on the investing side. Oh, one, a funny thing happened. TK and I started a company together and we sold it off. And we had some money in there, not enough to retire on, but a little bit of money. We're like, well, what are we going to do with this money? Why don't we try going into the investing business ourselves? And that's how Wasabi Ventures started. We took the money that we had earned by selling off one of our startups and said, we're going to turn ourselves into investors. Which is a very common phenomenon in Silicon Valley, basically pay it forward, right, to the system itself? Absolutely. Also, when you've been both an entrepreneur and an investor, you realize, oh my God, it's so much work being an entrepreneur. Maybe there's an easier way. So from your different roles as an investor, writer, mentor, and also entrepreneur, what are the interesting career lessons you can share? So I definitely talk with a lot of young people, and even not so young people, about their careers and, and what they should be doing. And probably the most important advice I have for them is to really look not just at the job title, investor, writer, entrepreneur, what have you, but look at the day-to-day -day activities you're performing. So, for example, in a lot of what I do, you know, people might label it as, oh, you're an author, you're a public speaker, you're an investor. But I look at it in terms of the activities. And what I say is I'm going to meet and talk with interesting people one-on-one. -on -one. I'm going to read a lot of things and sort of process them in my mind and then write interesting information. And I'm going to go and talk about things that I care about. Well, those are activities that I really enjoy. So it tells me that the set of things I've chosen to do with my life are a good fit with what I am. If, on the other hand, you, know, you could picture a different person who is saying, well, I'm also a writer, I'm also an entrepreneur, I'm also an investor, and they might say instead, well, what I do is I comb through SEC filings and I look for companies that are undervalued. Or they might say, well, I have a set speech and I work on it relentlessly and I just deliver the same speech every time, a hundred times a year. Those are things that still have the same label, but would not appeal to me nearly as much. So I tell people, look at the actual underlying activities you're performing. Don't just get hung up on the label. So what's your current role and coverage within Wasabi Ventures then? So within Wasabi Ventures, uh, there are a lot of things that we do. We help government research labs and the U.S. military spin technologies out. We're starting to do work with corporates as well. We do a lot of work with entrepreneurs, obviously, educating entrepreneurs, teaching them about various things. And we sometimes start our own companies as well, just uh, as, as TK and I originally started out. So in terms of what I do within Wasabi Ventures, within that broad sphere, obviously there's the, the general management side, but the areas I really focus on are investing and mentoring entrepreneurs and acting as the dean of our academy, which is our educational program for entrepreneurs. So much of this ties into just what I enjoy doing, which is meeting and talking with smart and interesting people. And that comes to the main two topics that we are going to talk about today. And I have read the book that you have co-authored with Reid Hoffman, Ben Kershaw-Nocha, which is called The Alliance. And the other one was a lecture that I spent 20 hours of probably every lunch, everyday lunchtime to watch it, which is the blitz scaling course that you did at Stanford. So I'm going to start from the Alliance book first, because it's a very interesting book. It has a lot of implications to how workplace, how people should manage their careers there as well. So what's the motivation behind writing this book? The motivation really is that 
people didn't have a good way of thinking about the employment relationship. And I'm here in Silicon Valley, and one of the things we see is people are hopping from job to job. People are really focused on an old-school vision of how work works. And I ultimately think it's it's counterproductive. I think that somebody who stays six months at each company is not actually doing themselves a huge service. On the other hand, it's also unrealistic for someone to believe, okay, I'm going to go join this company and work for it the rest of my life. So the intellectual puzzle we were trying to solve is, okay, given these facts, how can we actually work out an employment relationship that's going to make sense for employers and for employees, going to reflect the way the modern world works, but also be something that's good for everyone. And that's where the alliance came out. Can you also briefly discuss a little bit about the main thesis of the book as well? Yeah, the main thesis of the book is that managers and employees should think of themselves as allies, not as parents and children and not as free agents. The reason thinking of yourself as an ally is important is because it recognizes that both sides are independent parties, that they have their own sets of needs, but they have mutual goals around which they can work together. And so if you're a manager and you're an ally with your employee, you don't sort of say, well, here's what I need you to do and here's what I'm going to give you if you do it. You say, well, what is the mission that you as an employee should be on? How is that mission going to help the company? And how is that mission going to help you, the employee, advance in your own career? And it turns the focus of management from, I'm going to manage a person's activity and output to, I'm going to manage a person's development. I'm going to be an ally as opposed to a taskmaster. In the book, the concept of the tour of duty is introduced, which is analogous to how someone would move in their military career. Can you actually describe the concept of the tour of duty and how it came about? Certainly. The concept of the tour of duty says saying that we are allies is not enough. We also have to structure the relationship. And what we noticed when we looked around in the world and looked at our own lives is that essentially we have tours of duty in our careers. We spend time working towards a particular mission, And when we accomplish that mission, we then tackle a new mission. It's sort of like a mission impossible kind of thing. And the tour of duty really does stem from the military where you might be stationed in a particular base or you might be assigned to a particular operation. Uh, And you don't just sort of drift. You don't just sort of say, well, I'm just going to stay at this base forever. When you've accomplished your mission, you start thinking about what your next mission is going to be. And that's really what we're trying to do with the concept of tour of duty, to say that employees should always know what their mission is rather than sort of drifting along, just punching a clock. So how do one approach their career using the concept of the tour of duty when it's met to the real world? So really what a person should do as an individual employee is they should think of their career as a company that they're the CEO of. And if you're going to track the progress of your career, you can do that very easily by looking at your own LinkedIn profile. Each of those entries is essentially a different tour of duty, something that you're doing, some mission that you're accomplishing. And the goal with the tour of duty in your career is to say each stage, each additional tour of duty should create and open up more possibilities for my career, should advance my career and give me the ability to get closer to where I ultimately want to be. So, for example, if somebody says, you know, part of my career is I want to be a global citizen, not just a citizen of the United States, well, then one of your tours of duty, one of the things it might accomplish is you might do a tour of duty in Singapore, for example, or another geographic location to begin to get you closer to that vision of being a global citizen. With technology having the potential to displace labor, is there a potential impact based on the ideas proposed in the alliance itself? Yeah, this is actually a very important 
issue that is going to become more and more important over time. Technology certainly has the ability to displace labor. We've seen this in the labor force before. It used to be that most societies were agrarian. Most people worked in farming. If you looked at the United States of America and you went back in time 150 years, something like 90% of the population was on farms, and today that number is vanishingly small. So essentially, we've shifted completely. And we were able to do that because, again, you have multiple generations to do that. The big issue with technology is things are going to happen so quickly that we can't just do this uh, passive adjusting. We have to do active adjustments. And that's where the ideas of the alliance are really going to come into play. The focus of the alliance is what we call our transformational tour of duty. And what it means is that transformational tour of duty helps change the company and change the person's career. It accepts the fact that change is a constant and that it's something you actually have to work towards. So as technology comes in and changes the workforce, you know, you're going to increasingly have tours of duty where you're saying, okay, this industry that I'm in may no longer exist. I need a new tour of duty that's going to drive new skills and new accomplishments that allow me to move into a different industry or that allow me to become more valuable within my current industry. And I think that given the fact that you just can't count on having the same job until you retire, especially because robots are coming for them, the tour of duty is going to be even more important. Would that also mean that the workforce will become more creative because the jobs of manual and has been taken away by automation and smartness? Absolutely. I think people are going to have to realize that life is about lifelong learning. Uh, it is difficult in the sense that you know, there are some people who may have well have been content to simply say, well, I'm just going to be a skilled laborer and I'm going to work on an assembly line or understand how to work these things. Uh, the fact is, that equipment's going to change. Maybe in the 20th century, the assembly line that was putting together Ford motor cars stayed roughly the same from decade to decade. But today, new technology is coming in and affecting everything. The assembly line of today is going to look completely different than the assembly line of 10 years from now, even if the assembly line of 10 years from now isn't completely robotic. So everyone, regardless of whether they're currently thought of as a knowledge worker or not, is going to have to become a lifelong learner. So how does the business organization approach their employees given that the concept of the iron rice bowl is no longer in existence? I mean, in Asia, this is a very common oh, phenomenon. Yes. My father worked for a company for 50 years, but I guess this kind of employment doesn't exist anymore in today's world. But people are still talking about five to 10 years, which is actually considered very long in an employment timescale. Yeah. And again, this is not to say that the iron rice bowl was a bad thing. I think that there are plenty of reasons why people like the stability of working for a single organization. And in fact, one of the things that people sometimes misunderstand about the alliance is that we're advocating job switching. We're not. In fact, most cases, you're better off with your current employer because you, know, you understand the culture, you understand how to get things done, you have great network within the organization, you have to have a compelling reason to leave your organization, at least if you're being rational about it. But the Iron Rice Bowl does no longer exist. It's very rare. If I see an audience of people, I ask them, do you think your children are going to work for one employer in their entire career? Nobody says, yeah, that's what I think is going to happen. Everyone understands that the world has changed. Yeah. So what you could do in the context of the alliance, you could say, listen, I'm not going to guarantee you lifetime employment, but I'm going to help you achieve lifetime employability. The key is to help employees develop their market value, their ability to add value either in your organization or another organization. And the organizations that do the best job of supporting that lifelong learning, of building up the assets, the soft assets and, and human capital of their employees are going to be the organizations that actually do the best job of hanging on to them. 
in typical HR practice, I mean, if you help to develop the individual, I mean, consider the interest of the organization is, of course, to retain and try to keep its best employees. But once your market value goes up, there is a propensity for them to leave the organization. How do you answer to that then? Well, I think that there's always a risk. I think that the quick, very witty answer that I often give is, so do you want to retain a bunch of employees that nobody else wants? Right. The, the fact, this notion in people's minds of, oh, if I train my employee, they're going to become more attractive and other people are going to try to steal them away. Well, if people are trying to steal away your people, that's a good sign. That's a sign that you have a talented workforce. And so instead of trying to make your workforce less talented, you should focus on making your workplace more appealing to that talent. I think that if you're an organization and you're doing a great job of providing these development opportunities, providing an environment in which people feel like they're making progress, may, are able to advance their careers, you're going to hold on to them for longer than otherwise. And again, you're not going to be able to hold on to people forever. That's just going to be very difficult in general. You're just looking to be able to hold on to them for longer. Which comes to my next interesting topic that I want to get come to talk to you about, which is blitzscaling. It came from a course that which Reed Hoffman, John Lilly, and you taught in Stanford last summer. And I think the 20 hours of videos are worth watching. And if I'll put a link to get any of my audience to go and watch it. But I want to ask you, what is the concept of blitzscaling and how they came about? Certainly. And I'll, let me also mention that Reed's co-founder at LinkedIn, Alan Blue, also oh, taught yeah. that class as well. So that's right, we'll that's just right. make sure we give everyone credit where credit yeah, is due. Correct. Uh, so in terms of the concept of blitzscaling, what we observed, and this is really fundamentally an insight that Reed began with, but he began developing with John and Alan and I. And, and so, again, we all get credit. But again, let me give credit to Reed. I think that he was the one who first started thinking about this. We looked around at Silicon Valley and said, you know what? Everyone keeps spending all their time talking about what it takes to start a company, start a company, start up, start up, start up. And yet, most of the value creation and most of the challenges arise as you're trying to scale the company. And a lot of those challenges arise because you're scaling the company not at the sort of sedate pace that is common in regular business. Oh, 15% a year growth, that would be great. The stock market will like that. But rather, this crazy breakneck pace where you're saying, oh, we're tripling the number of people we have every year. And it's essentially like future shock. Change is happening so quickly that the organization has to radically change in order to adapt to the new situation. So the way we are now defining blitzscaling is we say blitzscaling is the pursuit of rapid growth where you are prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. And just to cover each of those, rapid growth, as I mentioned, obviously brings about a huge assortment of changes, a lot of challenges to the organization. Prioritizing speed over efficiency means that you're saying, listen, I may have to be wasting some of my capital here. I'm not spending it in the way that the business school calculation would necessarily say to spend it. But I believe that we have an enormous opportunity where we need to be the first people to scale. And if necessary, we're going to spend money in order to do that. If you look at a company like Uber, for example, which I mentioned earlier in the context of Jeff Holden, that's a company that has spent massively in order to get to scale. And I think probably rightly so because there are network effects that make their business valuable in terms of being the first to scale. Finally, an environment of uncertainty. It's very easy to spend a lot of money if you know for a fact it's going to work out. But if you know for a fact it's going to work out, usually the competition is going to know for a fact it's going to work out as well. So when you're aggressive, you're often moving before you're comfortable with the decision. But you're doing it because 
doing so allows you to steal a march on the competition and, and get yourself to a better strategic position. So how does this differ from basic startup wisdom? So a lot of startup wisdom is focused around, hey, let's go ahead and keep things lean, which, again, makes a lot of sense. Let's make sure we find product market fit. Let's A-B test everything. Let's make these decisions based on the data. And that's great at that early stage. You, you don't have as much competition. We're trying something completely new. You're still trying to figure things out. And if you prematurely blitz scale at that point, you're just going to spend a lot of capital and you're going to end up in a situation where you've spent a ton of capital and you haven't created the value and thus your shareholders are going to be unhappy. But that startup wisdom, that lean startup movement works as long as you're sort of in that discovery phase. But once you've actually gotten to a point where you have serious competition, you need to grow rapidly, the company's expanding like crazy, that startup wisdom no longer works. So uh, a lot of the things that you might do at that phase, okay, everyone's going to be a generalist, uh, we're going to have everyone in the same room, everything's going to be based on personal relationships that the founders have with other people, are going to have to radically change. By the time you're a 100 150-person company, you're completely different. So in the lectures, it was mentioned that the ability to scale startup is what distinguishes Silicon Valley against the rest of the world. With the rise of the China's startup ecosystem, does that thesis actually change? Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. If you look at blitzscaling, Silicon Valley has long been the place that does blitzscaling. But China has really come and, and its startup ecosystem has sprung up in a way where now it's really Silicon Valley in China. And I think that you know, one of the things we looked at is we said, well, there are some differences in the way blitzscaling happens in Silicon Valley versus China. And it reflects, to some extent, the different resources that are available. The fuel for blitzscaling is always people and capital. And with people and capital, there are, you know, you're using those things and use, applying those resources to grow the company. In Silicon Valley, it tends to be, you know, there's capital that's readily available. People are a little harder, but fortunately, you have a well-developed ecosystem with a lot of people who are already experts in the things you need to do. So you can get by, oftentimes, with a leaner team. In the case of China, you know, the ecosystem is less developed in terms of the talent. And so, but there is a, such a staggeringly large number of raw talent available that you can blitz scale, but maybe in a slightly different way. You spend more of your capital on people, but the fact that you have so many people available allows you to actually scale in a way that you can't in Silicon Valley. And I think you can see that reflected in the success of companies like Foxconn, where frankly, you know, if Apple tried to manufacture the iPhone in the United States, it couldn't do it in time. It couldn't meet its shipment requirements. It requires the kind of massive scale that a Foxconn is able to deploy and the kind of nimbleness and agility a Foxconn has. So there are different stages associated with scaling. For example, family, tribe, village, city, and nation. How do you describe these different scales? And is it also a condition of when or when the company or startup should scale then? Yeah, so we looked at these different stages and used them as a sort of descriptive way of, of thinking about blitzscaling. And the observation we had is that as you scale up, each order of magnitude brings massive change. So a family, we call that being at the ones stage, i.e. you have one to ten, one to nine employees. And so as a result, you, know, you really are like a family. You're all underneath the same roof. You're probably in the same place. Everyone's talking with everyone constantly. Everyone has close relationships. And it really does have a family feel. As you grow into a tribe, now all of a sudden, 
maybe you have 10 to 100 people. Well, with a tribe, not everyone has a deep relationship with every other person. But you still know and recognize all the other people. You can still do a lot of communications face-to-face. The tribe still gets together. It's easy to get the tribe into a same room. The next stage, the village, now we're talking about 100 to 1,000 people, usually two to 300 people. Now it's completely different, right? You're not going to know everyone. Even if you're the CEO, you may not know everyone in the organization, and certainly the individual employees do not know every other employee. You're also shifting massively from a family where everyone had to be a generalist and be able to do anything to, at the village stage, people are now specialists. Someone's a baker. Someone's a blacksmith. Someone is a cobbler. Everyone does just do everything and make the household self-sustaining. So it's important to understand that you're shifting the nature of the people that you have and shifting the way you organize them. City is the next stage up from that, and that's thousands of people. Now with a city, of course, you can't just sort of govern things with a single unitary village council. The mayor doesn't know everybody. Now at the city level, You've got to have uh, formal processes. You've got to have different neighborhoods that work in different ways. So you're now dealing with globalization as well. And finally, at the nation stage, that's sort of the final level of evolution. That's tens of thousands of employees. That's a company like Amazon where you really are like a sovereign nation. And if you're the CEO, you're not a CEO who can reach out and talk to every member of the family. You're not a CEO who can call all the members of the tribe into a single room and talk to them. You're a CEO of a nation where you can basically get up and give a State of the Union address. So... Those are the different stages along the way, and we use terms like family, tribe, village, city, and nation because they just, I think, intuitively allow people to grasp the differences between them. I thought it was very interesting during the lecture series that you actually bring different people from different stages into the to talk about how they actually have to manage at that different scale of that. So one one interesting question I probably want to ask is, what are the things that an entrepreneur should watch out when they're blitzscaling in each stage? Yeah. So I think that the, the overall thing that people really get blindsided by is the organizational side of things. And it's a question of how am I going to organize the company at this different at each different stage? What is going to be different along the way? And how do I deal with the fact that there are changing expectations of employees? Because oftentimes one of the biggest stresses for founders, and I was just talking with the CEO of a company the other day who was telling me about this, is the company grows uh, at this incredible super linear pace. But people themselves may not be able to scale. And as a result, you know, early employees will say things like, hey, I liked it better in the old days when I could just see the CEO sitting across from me as opposed to now when I got to go through his or her assistant and wait three months for an appointment. And so that's one of the biggest things that you have to deal with as you're scaling. So in terms of the best practices at each stage, well, when you're going from the family stage to the tribe stage, Really what you're doing is you're going from an an environment where everyone is an equal and everyone's just sort of mixed together to the tribe stage. You're actually beginning to define the different roles, right? You're saying, you do this, I do this. Tribes have to have defined roles in order to function. It just can't be a scrum of everybody doing the same things. As you go from tribe to village, now instead of just, hey, we're doing this and it's sort of a flat organization, now all of a sudden you're going to have levels of hierarchy at the village stage. 
you have managers, and you're starting to actually think about having executives. And the distinction in our mind is a manager is someone who manages other people. An executive is somebody who manages managers. And so obviously having those three different layers of executives, managers, and employees doesn't necessarily make sense until the company reaches a certain stage. That's why I always think it's a bad sign when I see a five-person company and everyone is a chief something or other. I'm like, what are you chief of? You're not managing anyone. You're not managing. You're, not, you're especially not managing managers. I was going to say at the city at the city stage, you're definitely building an executive team. And the thing about the the city stage is, you know, this is a point at which you really have to think about. Well, what are the roles that your other founders are going to be in? If you're the CEO, are your other founders going to be executives? Do they have that ability? Do they have the requisite skills, or do they need to be individual contributors or managers? Maybe they don't want to be an individual line manager. Maybe they want to have a more strategic role. But these are the things you have to work out because it's not the case and generally not the case that the person who is a great co-founder is necessarily going to be a great executive at a scaled up company. And when you get to the nation stage, now you are really dealing with a, a huge difference, right? You, you're As the CEO, uh, you may never even see the vast majority of your people on a regular basis. And so the mechanisms by which you communicate with people are going to be electronic or need to be are going to need to be scalable. You can't rely on personal magnetism. Now you really have had to do a good job of building culture so that you have a scalable way to communicate the values of the company. Then what about the best practices in approaching scaling when the company itself reaches each stage? Does that mean you have to put in different organizational structures and do you have any recommendations on that? Yeah, and I think that the best way of thinking about it is in people who are working in the technology field often understand the concept of technical debt. And with technical debt, it basically says that when I build a system, I build an application, I'm making certain choices along the way. There's no perfect way to build an application. I'm making choices. I'm always making trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs mean doing things that are hacks, that are shortcuts in order to get something done. And that builds up technical debt. And eventually, you have to pay down that technical debt by refactoring the code. Well, in the context of an organization, as you grow from stage to stage, you're often going to have to refactor the organization. The things that make a company work really well when there's 10 people in a room are totally different than the things that make a company work well when there's 100 people scattered across two offices or 1,000 people with offices in different countries. You have to refactor the organization. That may mean shuffling the deck. Oftentimes, it means replacing the current executives with new executives. It just is a, a matter of fact that the same people who are sitting around the table in a five-person company are not necessarily going to be the same people sitting around a five-person table as the senior management team at a 10,000-person company. In the whole course, you brought entrepreneurs and executives to discuss the different stages. What are the interesting lessons that have been shared that you find valuable? So I think one of the things that's interesting, and it's always stuck with me, Eric Schmidt, who is the former CEO of Google and the chairman of Google, obviously a very successful guy, previously the CEO of Novell, and a computer scientist himself, what he said was all the great products in this technology field are created by a professor who is looking for tenure with a couple of grad students. And that's a very evocative way of saying that oftentimes breakthroughs are still conducted by a small number of people. And you can see that even with something like Amazon Web Services. We talk about Amazon Web Services in the Alliance, where it was not like a strategic level initiative initially. It was something which a couple of people working on the operations side said, hey, you know what, we 
built this incredible operation to run our own servers. Maybe we should think about renting out to other people. And Jeff Bezos was wise enough to say, you know what, this is a great idea. I'm going to support it. So I think that one of the things that I want people to take away is even as you blitz scale, even as you grow to this enormous size, you still need to have pockets inside the organization where you have those small teams because those small teams are the ones that are going to deliver those breakthroughs. And can the ideas of blitzscaling be spread to other parts of the world, for example, Asia, Europe, Latin, and even Minas? Absolutely. I think that blitzscaling, obviously, as I mentioned, depends on there being sufficient capital and sufficient talent available. But thanks to a world in which you know, education is getting better, people are well-connected uh, via the networks that connect all of us together, it's increasingly possible to blitzscale in other locations. In many cases, you can blitzscale someplace and actually collect money from other ecosystems. So you might be growing, I mean, there, there's companies that are growing in, say, India that are collecting money from China and the United States in order to do this. And I think blitzscaling is really important because as we all get better at growing small companies into big companies, we're able to get better at creating these new jobs. Remember we talked before about how technology is going to displace people. We live in an age of disruption. Well, in order to make sure that there are enough good jobs out there that people can work, find meaning in their work, can be an ally to their manager, uh, you're going to need to create new companies and new industries. And blitzscaling is the way we take small startups and convert them into new industries and new world-changing companies. Wow. Chris, thank you so much for coming on to talk about The Alliance, which is one of my favorite books, and also blitzscaling. So my final question to you, how do my audience find you? So it's very easy to find me because, because uh, since I've been an early adopter, in most cases, my username is just Chris Yeh, which sucks for the other Chris Yeh's of the world. So you can find me at chrisyeh.com. You can go on Twitter and look at the handle Chris Yeh, and those are probably the two best places. You can also find my blog, which, again, has been running since 2001, continuously for 15 years. It's so old, it's actually on Blogspot, and that's just chrisyeh.blogspot.com. And uh, just to, as a shout out, I need to thank Pascal from the Singularity University Labs for actually getting me this interview with Chris. And you can find me at blongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Google Play. And of course, if you listen to Overcast, do recommend us. And of course, you can always tweet me feedback. And I've been getting some speakers actually directly through Twitter recommendations from the listeners. So once again, Chris, thank you for coming on the show. And I look forward to speak to you again. Such a pleasure. Always happy to come back anytime.